There's a game that we all play. There's a game that has been played throughout every human culture and every time period uh, of the history of, of the world. I'm sure of it. It's called Keeping Up with the Joneses um, or Staying on Top or Making a Name for Yourself. It's a game that everybody plays. We all know how to play it. We look around, we see what's going on, we see how good so-and-so is or what they're doing and, and we sort of jump in and, and, and give it our best shot. And it's rooted, this game is rooted in a desire for us to be somebody. Or you could say it's rooted in a desire to be okay. To be somebody, kind of the same thing, to be somebody or to be okay. This is where that game's rooted. And this game that we play shapes our values. It shapes what we think is really worthwhile. It shapes our motivations. It, it shapes the, the way in which we move ourselves to action. Our will is moved by this game that we tend to play. It shapes our ambitions, our goals, our dreams, oftentimes are shaped deeply by this game. There's lots of subcultures in this game. Uh, I, I remember being at the school uh, recess or playground with Chloe after picking her up one day last fall, and there was this young, probably fourth grade boy who had this, this soft cover binder with all kinds of action hero trading cards. You know, and Everybody wanted to be around him and see his cards and see what he, was, uh, what he had in his little treasure there. That's one little subculture. Um, the subcultures are really ad infinitum. They go on and on forever. But, but it, there, there are all kinds of different ways that we play this game to be somebody, to be okay. And being somebody in this game depends upon our status amongst the others around us, at least those that we care about. It depends upon perhaps our possessions or our merits or our achievements. It, it ultimately it depends upon what we bring to the table in the face of everyone else. Our identity is really rooted in these things as we play this game. What I have, the name that I bring, the family that I was born into, the accomplishments that I've done, our identity is rooted there. And, and this game leads to a kind of, of boasting, a kind of one-upmanship in the world around us. We know this game really well. We all do it. it leads to name dropping in conversations or to the kind of quick slip in of accomplishments that we've had in the past. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of boasting that we begin to have in ourselves, in who we are and what we've done. Or at least one of those two things. Better yet, both of those things. And it kind of creates this game a, a distinction Again, depending upon the subculture that you're in, whether I doubt many of you it's action figure trading cards, but um, maybe it's academics and intellectual pursuits or, or business or art. You just pick the, the, the subculture. What, what happens is you get a, a, a distinction, a dividing line right down the middle between the, the people who are in and okay and the people who are out and not okay. And either as a result are depressed and down or are looking for the next best opportunity to trip you up so that they can get in. That's the game that we play and we've been playing it since the history of humankind, since we were created and fell into sin. But what Paul says in this passage in Philippians 3, a pretty well-known passage, is he says that there's another game in town. There's a different game to play. And this game actually is rooted in God's actions in Christ Jesus. 
in what God has done in the world. God being the creator and maker of all things and in what He's done in sending His Son Jesus into the world. There's a different way to be okay. There's a different way to be somebody. And it's really the only way to be really okay is what Paul would say and what the Christian faith would make a claim to. And it's the fact that God gives the okayness to you. He gives the somebodiness that you're looking for in the game that you're busy playing all the time in the world that we know. He actually just gives it to you. He makes you okay. And this game is not rooted in who you are or where you come from or the kind of pedigree that you have or the accomplishments or the things that you've done, but this game is rooted in, in something completely different, something that you only have a, a stake in by virtue of the grace and the goodness and the love of God to give you that opportunity. It's rooted in God's saving acts. It's rooted in what God has done in the world, not in what you're doing. And therefore, this game leads to somebody who's not boasting in their own achievements and accomplishments and somebodiness, but it leads to someone who's humble. The people who play this game are the people who are poor in spirit, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. The people who recognize that they don't have a whole lot to bring into this game. And what's interesting is in this game, instead of creating a, a dividing line down the middle where you've got your insiders and your outsiders, your people who are okay and your people who are not okay, you get this incredibly amazing inclusiveness. A leveling of the history of humankind. A leveling of every single achievement that you've ever had takes place in this game. And everybody comes through the same door. Everybody comes empty. Everybody comes lowly. Everybody comes hungry. And those who come then are given this wonderful privilege of being somebody. Now, all of that is to say that you can't play both games. And in many ways, that's the heart of what Paul's saying in this bit of his letter to the Philippians. You can't play both games. You might try, and we're going to see his response to those who try, but, but you just can't play both of these games at the same time. You either play this one game or you play the other game. So which game are you playing? That's the question that I want, want to put before you. Which game are you playing? Which game are you going to play? Where are you going to get your somebodiness or your okayness from in your life? Whose game? Paul's pretty upset. You don't actually kind of have to say, well, Paul, tell me what you really think when you look at this passage. Look at verse 2. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to bring your Bibles when we, when we get together for worship. Um, one day, maybe we'll have pew Bibles, but we don't yet. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. The workers of evil, literally. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In the original language, this is kind of a power blow, three in a row of, of a word that begins with B and a word that begins with K, and it's just got this kind of ring to it. You don't have to wonder what he really thinks. He's pretty upset. He's, he's pretty concerned with his opponents that he's kind of taken to in this text in verse 2. 
He says, and, and, and just to, to, to make clear, these, these opponents, we have a pretty good idea of who they are. These are what we call Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians who say to people who follow Jesus that in order to become, especially to Gentiles, that is to those outside of the nation of Israel, he, they, they say to them that if you really want to be somebody, if you really want to be okay, Jesus isn't enough for you. You've got to become like a Jew. You've got to become a full Jewish proselyte. You've got to go through the purity laws and you've got to get circumcised. You've got to do the things that we do to have this true kind of identity as the people of God. And that's his opponents. It's people really, in a sense, on the inside of Christianity who are saying to the churches that he's gone out with his blood, sweat and tears to plant that this isn't enough. What he said to you about clinging to Jesus just doesn't cut it. You've got to have something else. So it's not Christ, but it's Christ plus. It's Christ plus something else. And Paul's saying basically, look, if it's Christ plus something else, it doesn't matter what else it is. You could, you could say it's Christ plus my health, Christ plus my uh, achievements, Christ plus, just fill in the blank. If it's Christ plus anything, then it's the old game. It's not the new game. And that's why he gets so passionate when he starts writing these words to protect his friends, the Philippians. Now, we don't know if these opponents of his were actually in Philippi. There's good reason to believe that maybe they weren't. But they were roaming around the Gentile world teaching these kinds of things. And Paul wants his friends to be aware of this. So, so he says this, look out or beware of these who are coming to say this message. It's just the same old game. And then what he says is he says, you know what? I was really good at playing this game. Verses 4 through 6. If anybody thinks they can play this game pretty good, I can play it better, he says. And then he lists seven things in verses 4 through 6 that show you just how good he was at playing this game. And four of them are things that he has by virtue of his birth. Pedigree. And three of them are things that he has by virtue of his achievements. His accomplishments. What are the two ways that you become somebody or that you become okay in the eyes of the world around you? By your pedigree, by what you were born into, just ask William and, and Harry, or by your achievements, by who you've become, by climbing out of the gutter, by your own, pulling up your own bootstraps. Paul says, I could play this game with the best of them. Look, verse 4, if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, for being good at this game that we play. I have more circumcised on the eighth day. This was according to the laws, the laws of Israel. This was the way it was to work. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, the tribe that stayed loyal to the throne of David. Benjamin, the tribe from which our first king ever came, King Saul. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew uh, uh, of the people of Israel, the tribe, so he's of the, the, the chosen nation, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, saying, I've got the pedigree that nobody can match. Nobody can stand up to this. This isn't the case of somebody who's been left out and saying, hey, this game isn't fair. This is the case of somebody who's at the top of his game. Those are the four things by pedigree. The three things by accomplishment, he says, um, as to the law of Pharisee, this is his party affiliation. This was a sect in, in Second Temple Judaism of Paul's day that had a zeal for the purity of Israel. 
and for protecting the religious um, ceremonies and the national purity of this nation, which led them to emphasize the things in the law that God had given that distinguished them from everybody else. Remember that line down the middle, the insiders and the outsiders? The Pharisees loved that line. And they were kind of the, the ascending party. A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, one who was so zealous for the, the nationalistic fervor of his homeland and of his people that he persecuted the people of the Messiah, the people of Jesus, and said, no, this is not going to happen because they didn't respect these lines of in and out. And as, under the, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless, he says. This was someone who followed the stipulations both in terms of commandments and in terms of atonement and forgiveness of the law, blamelessly, he says. So not only was I born into the right family, not only did I inherit all these wonderful things, but look, I've actually played harder than anybody. And I've excelled in this game more than anyone else can. But something happened, didn't it? Paul says, if you want to play the game, I can play the game with you. In fact, I can play it better than you. But something happened when he was in his zeal going to persecute the church in Damascus. Something happened to Paul. And this is, what, this is the game changer. This is, this is what uh, transfers someone from one game to the other is he met the risen Christ. He met the risen Christ. He encountered Jesus. He didn't just read about Jesus in some book. He didn't just hear about Jesus from someone else. He encountered Jesus. This one who is humble and lowly. This one who is meek and kind. This one who is selfless and sacrificial in his love to his people. This one who is powerful and able to raise the dead, heal the sick, help the blind to see, calm the storm. He met this Jesus. And when he met Jesus, the game literally changed. And then he begins in verse 7 to use this financial terminology of gains and losses to talk about just how much this game has changed and how there's no way to play one and the other at the same time. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, whatever I was holding on to to be somebody in this world, to be okay before the people around me, to be liked and loved, to be important, to be popular. Whatever I had, whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. His assets in the old game, the things that he used to glory in, the things that he took great pride in, the things that he had kind of a smug sense of self-satisfaction over. What are those things in your life? What are those things that you, that you think make you special, that you think make you someone, that you're clinging to to be something in this world? Those things for Paul, those were his gains. They became loss. All of a the sudden, they became 
a loss. It was as if, to use an analogy, he was playing baseball and got thrown on the hockey rink with a bat and a glove. And all of a sudden, in that new environment, there was no use to these things anymore. They were worthless. The word he uses in verse 8 is this word uh, garbage or dung, just something that has no value and is meant to be thrown out entirely. To be thrown away. So he sits down and on the ledger in his old game and the things that were his gain, he's crossed through them and they've become lost. It's become a zero-sum thing. He's written off his assets and said their relative value to me once was everything. This once was, I would have died for these things. I would have, and I tried to kill other people for these things. All of a sudden, they're nothing. They mean nothing to me anymore. I count them as loss. In God's matrix, these things have absolutely no value. They're void. They're empty. In fact, beyond that, they're actually liabilities. They're actually dangerous to me because these things that the world likes in its game that I start to feel good about have this potential and this inclination to lead me to a kind of pride and arrogance and an exclusivity, and a looking down upon, and a drawing the line. And these kinds of behaviors and attitudes actually cut directly against the grain of what God has revealed as his heart and his purpose in his son, Jesus. So they're not just worth nothing. They actually become liabilities. They actually potentially drag him down. But he says he counts them as loss. Why? Why does he count these things at loss? Why is it that there's an opportunity for us to get out of that one game? And not just to get out of it, but then to say that all the things that I used to glory in, whatever they were for you, I can lay them down. Why? Why? Why can you do this? Why is this an option? Because he met the risen Christ. He met Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, what does he say? He says, I counted all as lost for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, I count everything as lost because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He realizes when he meets this Jesus that he has found the pearl of great price. He's found the one thing that is valuable above everything else. The surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he, again, it's a very personal, intimate thing. Philippians is a very personal letter, the most personal that Paul leaves us. My Lord, he says. Not just the cosmic reigning, ruling Lord over everything, but my Lord, the one whom I long to know and to love and to be found in. We could never count these things as lost. You can never get out of the game that you're playing in the world unless you see that Jesus is the supreme treasure of life. Unless God takes away the blinders off of your heart and shows you the emptiness and, and, and the bankruptcy of everything that the game that we're playing leads us to. And says, no, the real value, the real treasure in your whole life, anywhere that you can find it, anywhere that you can look for it, is found here in Jesus. 
That's where it's found. And when the people of God see this surpassing worth of Jesus, Him as our supreme treasure, then and only then can we free ourselves from the the clinging to this stuff to be okay or to be somebody that we're clinging to all the time and every day. It's only then that we can pay the price of getting out of the one game and getting into the only game in town. Paul doesn't just change in his own opinion of himself, though he certainly does. He begins to see himself not as this one of tremendous righteousness, but as the chief of sinners, as he says in 1 Timothy 1. But he also, in, in, by virtue of, of meeting Christ and clinging to him and counting everything else as a loss, he gives up his security. He gives up his friendships. He gives up his, his reputation. He gives up his, 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 um, his, full, his, whole, his whole world that meant everything to him. He gives it up. He pays the price. I was having lunch last week with a man who was born in Korea who does ministry here in the city of Boston, and he was describing his own conversion experience at the age of 19 in South Korea, father from North Korea. Dad's ambition for his life was that he would grow up to be a diplomat, bright guy, be a diplomat, and then become an agent of of reconciliation between South Korea and his own father's tribe in North Korea. He meets Jesus and says, Dad, I can't do that. God has called me to serve him. Jesus has called me to serve him. This story is repeated over and over and over and over again for those who grow up in a culture where there's expectations to be something for the sake of their family or for the sake of their, their, the religion into which they're born. And this man said, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. And he then proceeded to tell me the story of, of how he followed Jesus out from under what his dad wanted him to do into this strange land called America to be a servant for Christ. He counted the cost. He paid the price. Why did he pay the price? Why was he willing to, 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 in a sense, offend his father in a culture where that meant everything not to do? Because he had met Jesus. He had seen his value and his worth. And he went on to tell me that his dad later, years later, came to know Christ and then to look up to his son as one of the heroes in his life because of his willingness to be obedient and follow Christ wherever it led him. So what price will we pay? It's tough. It's a tough question to ask in a culture where we can be Christians and not look any different, where we can be Christians and play the other game so well. What price will we pay? Will we pay for it with our reputation, our perhaps our our rule over our own time or our own talents or our own treasures to jump into this other game. What is it that you're clinging to tonight? To be somebody. To be okay. What is it that sort of sets you apart? Are you able by the grace of God to lay this down at the foot of Jesus? With Paul to say, I count this and everything in this other game as loss. Paul says in the end, it's about righteousness. 
It's about this, this right standing, this vindication before the one who made us. And what the, what the biblical text reveals to us is that though we, waste all, we, we spend all this time and energy on this one game, that there really is only one game. And it's a different game entirely. And so he compares these two kinds of righteousness in verse 9. This, this one that he says is my own, derived from the law, built in human achievement and boasting, versus the one that is from the faithfulness of Christ, deriving from God himself, and given on the basis of trusting in his saving acts of faith. This is all we long for. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news that God has given of himself to make us for us a way to stand before him blameless and holy. For when his audit comes in Christ Jesus, it is only this clinging to Christ by faith that stands for anything. And that's the perspective of Paul and of this text. We're in a series on the missional life. And let me just close with this thought that the missional effect of this encounter with the living and risen Christ as the supreme treasure of our lives that renders everything else that we put our hope in worthless is that at that point and at that point alone, the people of God begin to live fearlessly for the name of Christ and are free to pursue His will and His ways over and above everything else that tempts us to pursue it, everything else that calls out. Apart from that encounter with the risen Christ who alone is the supreme treasure, there is a fearfulness and a timidity, and a cowering, and a confusion that plagues the church. So that the missional, the missional life that we see here in Philippians 3 is a life of radical following of Jesus because it's counted everything is lost. There's nothing else to lose. You've got it all in Jesus. May that be true for us as the people of God. At Church of the Cross, I pray among all the churches of the city of Boston that proclaim Jesus in Boston and throughout this country and throughout this world. And I pray it will start in my own life and my own heart and in yours as well. Amen.